I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Lowen Morrow is a transmasculine theater and filmmaker, physical comedian, actor, improviser, and puppeteer, originally from Nova Scotia, now based in Toronto. They are a core member of the multi-award-winning comedy theater company Sex T-Rex, an artist in residence with Bad Dog Theater, and a huge nerd who's built dozens of castles in The Sims. They joined me to talk about Sex T-Rex's hit show Swordplay, returning to Toronto stages from December 16th to 22nd at the Assembly Theater as part of Bad Dog Theater's Comedy on Queen Street. Here's our conversation. But let's let's start with swordplay, um, okay. because uh, Sex T Rex is 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 mounting uh, a swordplay again, and this has been yeah. uh, sort of a, a, an ongoing hit for 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 all of you, right? Like it's been a show that's done quite well as it's toured around across Canada and all over the place. Um, for anybody who hasn't seen swordplay, what is it? It's physical comedy. Um inspired by swashbuckling adventures um, and particularly Princess Bride and um, and basically video games, like old-fashioned Super Nintendo video games. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a physical comedy, minimal props, um, using fabric to make staircases and dragons and stuff. And yeah, it's a comedy, obviously, and I think that's the gist. Yeah. It is. It is very much like if somebody took um, the Princess Bride and a bunch of those old classic uh, uh, Super Nintendo games, mashed them together, and just sort of like threw them on a stage and uh, made it as, as as wildly entertaining as it can be. Um, Sex T Rex is known for the physical comedy in, and the, the specifically not just the physical comedy, but the 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 just the physicality in general of of your productions. Um, as far as this show goes, and you've done it so many times in the past, looking back at the original, uh, the first time you did it to now, how has the physical comedy and the physicality evolved over the time that you've, you've been performing it? Specifically swordplay? Um, 
<laughs> we got older, so things are harder. Uh, we, we, all of our backs are bad now. Uh, we wrote it in 2015, or well, 2014, and it, it premiered in 2015. So coming on 10 years from when we wrote it. Um, so I think, and it's, it's, it's odd, we were watching old tape of rehearsal and we were developing it. And a lot of the elements have stayed the same. It's, it's, of all of our shows probably changed the least. It's just one of those shows that just kind of came out of the womb. Fine. <laughs> That's a weird metaphor. Uh, but yeah, it, it came out all right. And, uh, but we usually do work on our shows, um, kind of constantly. So once we produce a show, um, it's, we'll give notes back after every show and we'll tweak little moments. Um, so it is changed a bit, but just in these like little micro moments. Yeah. I think that's really important though, because it keeps the first off, it keeps this show alive and you are not the people yeah. that you were. You're not the people that you are now that you were when you created the show in so Certainly many not. ways. So there's a lot that has to change each time you do a show. Um, yeah. As far as, as, as the things that you you've looked at specifically in the show, if somebody saw this in 2015, and came back to see it now, what might they notice that's changed? Hmm. Well, I have short hair now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'll be wearing a very silly wig. Um, I'm not sure what they would notice if they saw it. I think, well, we have a new cast member. That's kind of a huge difference. Um, there's sort of a, there's the four core company members of Sex DRX, and then there's kind of a rotating fifth. Um, and this time it's Shardul Rasul. So that'll be really fun. He's been amazing. Um, he's a real pro and very funny. So I'm really excited for audiences to see Shardul, uh, doing this work. Um, that's going to be new. So if you've seen it before, this will be fun. But yeah, I don't know. I'm the kind of person that I, I like to watch a movie that I like again and again and again. And I think, um, certain, uh, nerd demographics are kind of like that too and i think that this show specifically speaks to nerds so i think in in many ways like keeping some of it the same is important and like watching your favorite movie or something again and again um i guess another thing that's going to change but probably no one will notice is we became acutely aware that we're old uh Recently, during a D&D Live, when a kid just trolled us from the audience and yelled, what is this, the 1990s? No. And we were, yeah, and we, on stage, we were all like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We have been making just constant 90s jokes. Um, and it kind of it made me aware that this, like, kid in the, 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 the conceit was always, like, the princess bride, grandpa comes and visits. But, like, the conceit was always grandpa was a millennial. Um but even the words I was using then for the kid, I think it was something like awesome and stuff. But we're supposed to juxtapose grandpa's like, that's sick, you know, which is like a very millennial term. Uh, but I was just kind of aware that like, you know, if I'm playing a kid, you know, in the future who's using like modern language, I, I have to change my language. So I've been polling Gen Z's for their vocabulary i've never felt older um i'm trying to understand what a, an equivalent for awesome is so that's another thing that might have changed we're going to change some of the kids vocabulary to maybe try to seem a little less like the kid is uh a millennial you know. too yeah <laughs> <laughs> i want to go back to your the rotating fifth cast member because every mm -hmm. time you do a, a show like this the dynamic of how sex T-Rex uh, interests because you have the core, the four, the core four, 
um, and then you add <laughs> your the different fifth. That must change the dynamic somewhat each time you bring in somebody. Their energy comes in and changes the show. And I've seen this show with various different fifth members, and I think it does change. What's it like for you guys bringing in somebody new each time? Uh, and so the show definitely can't be the same. I love it. I don't know. I think it's great. It, everyone brings in a different energy, as you say, and everyone brings in and and because we are always changing the show. Um, I guess there are some parts I'm thinking of now that are quite different from when we opened, but they're just little parts here and there. But yeah, like each person who's touched the show has left some kind of legacy in the show. Um, you know, I remember John Blair wrote a whole speech uh, for the character Igor that appears a couple times in the show and really upgraded that part. And I remember Danny Padgett played the fifth at one point and he rotated. He changed out a scene that he, I, I don't know uh, how to describe it, but it's just basically an eight bit sequence where a guy falls off a balcony. But he came up with that whole scene himself and like how to do it and to do it in eight bit um, and make it kind of a Metal Gear Solid reference with the the guy, the, the villain hiding in a box. Um, and then the the king just doesn't see him when he's in a box. Uh, you know, everybody's left their mark. I guess one major difference this time, um, I don't think it's a spoiler, but Shargel will be playing the crone, which is a character I would usually play. And so we're just kind of letting Shargel have that scene. Um, <laughs> and I think the plan is, is he's going to turn it into a bit of an improv game. So I'm really excited to see how that works out. So like every fifth person who's, of course, Joe Adelman, who originated the part, was originally our tech and he would just run on stage and do like a little bit and then run back to the tech booth because uh, you know that's how you do theater right um, and he he along with Sean like mixed all of the sound for the show so like every single person who's uh, played that part Peter Carlone in out in when we were out in um, BC um, they've all left their their legacy on the show and it's 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 really cool yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned the the, the millennial thing and uh, mm -hmm. how um, uh, uh, I, I just I, I wanted to talk about about Dungeons and Dragons in relation to that because mm -hmm. do you find in you know just jumping into D and D Live just to jump into different projects yes. D and D Live um, you guys have been doing that for quite some time but I'm curious about you have you know it's set in the in in Toronto the the the, the fantasy of land of Toronto. Of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, but do you find that your map of the magical world of Toronto um, is like the kid called you out on, like heavily influenced by the '90s? Like it hasn't moved on, and so the references aren't 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 updating. Or do you guys try to move yourselves out of that time when you were experiencing Toronto for the first time? <laughs> well, I think the map has been updated a couple times. I was noticing recently that forthright eds is still on there which is sort of the what honest eds was yeah. so we do have to change that unfortunately yeah. um but but like the it, it's mostly referencing neighborhoods and buildings um so the map itself really changes when we kind of get tired of it and we'll just find a new neighborhood to represent if we or if we come up with a, a goofy pun because they're all except for like parkdale which anything Dale, we just keep as it is because that sounds, you know, pretty fantasy enough. Like, um, and the Sky Dome, we just kind of call it that and it floats in the sky. You know, there's a lot of names that just are already 
uh, kind of magical sounding and we just keep those. But other than that, we kind of come up with puns or make it a little bit more um, fantasy-esque. Mm-hmm. But like the tomb of Eton, you know, because they didn't have any malls back then. Or the word mall meant a totally different thing. Yes, yeah. Uh, and not like back then as if like, you know, fantasy ever existed. But like the medieval kind yeah. of time when a lot of fantasies are set. Um, I think that like the... The part of the, the the program, we give like a player's handbook for every D&D live show and that's uh, what's being referenced here. And inside there's a map of the Realm of Tron. It's beautifully drawn by uh, Ben Steamroller. And the the thing that we do update regularly is a, a thing, a feature we have called Wandering Monsters. So every other show, there'll just be a wandering monster that appears that the audience can shout out. Um, those change because those are a little bit more uh, circumst- like more... Um, circumstantial less like buildings which change very infrequently um or neighborhoods which change infrequently so like oh i forget the joke but there was one reference to a convoy i was noticing when we did the show on sunday and i was like i think it might be timed it was like a it wasn't convoy golem but it was like some kind of thing and i was like we maybe want to swap that one out but but that's the thing like that that aspect of it does change out it's mostly our music references that are old <laughs> when we reference a song or something like that. Uh, that's where we really show our age. And not everyone in the cast is 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 uh, an elder millennial. A lot of we have a age range, but but those of us running it are, <laughs> you know. Well, Lowen, it's it's so hard because as you get older, the you think that that the you know even though you know it's not current, your musical references always go to. The things that you listen to when you're teens and early twenties, and there's no way, there's yeah. really no way around it. No matter how much you yeah. try to listen to updated stuff, yeah, it's just I think it's I don't know. I'm not a brain scientist, but that's just how our brains work. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, like you you have that fresh, squishy, open brain when you're that age, and everything's new, and you take it all all as this is how the world is. Yeah, and then the world changes. <laughs> 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 you know, and and you're you're less maybe flexible even though you can always still like learn and grow but my my god yeah like nothing makes me feel the way that i feel when i listen to music from you know when you're when you're young and and we're not millennials aren't alone in that i think every generation goes through their version of that yeah absolutely absolutely um now you guys have been doing uh uh D &D live for like 10 years Maybe longer. longer than that. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just sitting here trying to think when we started D&D Live. I don't know. I want to guess 2012. No, that seems. Yeah, maybe around 2012. But I think it's been longer than that. Mm. I think we had our 10 year anniversary a, a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that yeah. was I first became aware of not of, of your version of it, but around the time that I was touring with Keystone Theater, I think it was around 2012. We were in. Uh, 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 Winnipeg, which Winnipeg. had its D and D live, which was like you couldn't even get in the door for that during Fringe. Yeah. Somebody tried to do something similar in Edmonton that same year, and you know it was it it's it's a really great idea to like, improv this role playing game. Um, when did you guys first start thinking about doing it? Well, originally, I think it was a. My history is going to be a bit off, so I apologize. I think Sean might be able to, you know, correct after after the fact, but um, do some fact corrections. Uh, but I know it was after the Winnipeg show because our show is a, a direct spawn of the Winnipeg show, and I believe it was at first a Bad Dog production. 
And then Bad Dog didn't want to do it anymore, and we did, so we picked it up. Um, and now we're co-producing with Bad Dog, so it's kind of been through some some uh, jostling between Bad Dog and us. But it was an original spawn directly from, directly inspired by the Winnipeg folks. I love them. They're so wonderful. They've given us like so many... Every time we've gone to Winnipeg, I think it's only been twice, but we've been on their show um, for the Fringe, and they've been so kind. And yeah, we've we continue to <laughs> share ideas. Uh, yeah, we we continue to be inspired by them. Awesome, awesome. Now, yeah. um, you guys, the the, the whole D and D live, you guys are improvising an adventure. I believe Sean yeah. uh, uh, is the is the DM plus DJ. Um, yeah, and uh, sort of guides the the adventure, but you guys, the cast is uh, 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 improving, and there are dice rolls as well. With the, I think I've seen the giant dice at some mm-hmm. events that you've done, um, and that determines uh, how things go forward. Um, how much do you know going in what is planned for the evening? Oh, very little. I mean, it depends on the show. Once in a long while, there's going to be like, there's a fun idea or we'll have a guest who's coming in with a strong offer ahead of time. Uh, but we did a show this past Sunday. Um, and <laughs> right before the show, Sean comes backstage. is like, I think we might do a holiday theme show. How do people feel about that? <laughs> and then that was kind of it. Uh, that was the whole what we knew going. And I guess it's fair to say the characters know who their characters are and what they did last time mm-hmm. um so that kind of informs it uh but that's that's it everything uh else is determined by what the audience yells or what the audience rolls on the big giant d20s yeah um do you ever have to be reminded of what happened last time do you, do you... yes <laughs> Yes. Well, it's a once a month show. Um, and having done so many at this point, uh, I, I'd love to know how many versions of this show we've done because we did a whole fringe run of D&D Live. Like, let's say, I think it's safe to say well over 100 shows. <laughs> um, yeah, you can sometimes last time can get a bit fuzzy, but yeah, for sure. Once in a while, uh, we'll, we'll need a little refresher. Because every 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 game of Dungeons and Dragons I have ever played, we can't remember what happened last time. We need the the, the DM to yeah. do a recap before we even start, and hopefully they remember too. Yeah, that's fair. Same. Yeah, absolutely same. Um, yeah, we're, we're playing tonight. <laughs> uh, now, how long have have you and and the rest of the the, the group been playing D anD D? Oh well, Sean and I. Well, the whole group, we all went to uh, theater school together. Um, we didn't all start playing D&D together, though. But Sean and I started playing D&D together. Or, well, a role-playing game inspired by D&D. Um, in 2005. Yeah. So we've been playing D&D together since then. Connor comes and goes. We've done several campaigns with Julian, but yeah, we play with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's hard enough to get a game uh, together and to play it regularly. So to be playing it, I mean, you, like you said, rotating people, but it's good to 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 see people who've managed to keep a game going, both improv wise and tabletop wise. I know. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had some epic campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I want to go back to, to, uh, to, to Sex T-Rex, and I want to talk a little bit. And, and you can tell me if you don't want to talk about this. Um, but um, one thing that, is, that, that, that has changed is um, your gender identity has changed in the yes. time that from since you since you created the show and to, yes. to doing it now, um, do you and this this might be a weird question to ask, but do you have reservations about playing uh, as as a trans masculine theater maker now? Do you have reservations playing uh, a, a more feminine character, the princess character uh, uh, in this show? Yeah, it was a it was a thing I had to think about. Um, I I don't think I have reservations. I think that like, you know, I am transmasculine, and the reason I I'm not a trans man is because I I I still have a lot of feminine qualities, and I think that like, you know, not to bring in Drag Race, but to bring in Drag Race, <laughs> so, um, to bring in Drag Race, uh, it wasn't until I was sort of watching that show and I was seeing a lot of really feminine men in dresses like I was like that's kind of that's more what I am like I'm more of kind of a a feminine guy and I was never comfortable in dresses just as me but I loved wearing dresses like on stage and I love wearing you know if I had to go to like a formal event I would I would just be having like panic attacks and I couldn't understand why until I, I you know figured it all out but like I think we we talked about like does Princess Pimpernel because she does kind of go through a change in the show <laughs> from like uh, Princess Peach to I don't know someone who's a little less in need of rescue. Let's just say that um, she kind of has a violent turn, and so we were like, do we want like Princess Pimpernel to I don't know change pronouns at that time too do I take the wig off at that time like do we want to do that it was a conversation but at the end of the day like I think this particular character I'm not going to say sword plays in any way political but it was certainly at the time very much there were there were very few um strong violent uh, and strength and violence don't always go together. I'm just saying in this one case, just we, I didn't see a lot of that at that time. And I think that the her being a her is really important. And it's also really important for the Barnabas and Santa story. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I... Spoilers, this is 10-year-old show. I don't know, but... Uh, so maybe I won't, I won't give away the ending. But, but I think, like, gender and sexuality are important in this show and and I just kind of landed on she's she's a woman <laughs> you know and and I have no problem on stage playing roles like that um it's more in real life showing up as my own self that I <laughs> I do struggle to be seen as as uh something I'm not right yeah right and and do you mind if we talk a little bit about about the the dysphoria and things like that leading to uh, to coming out as transmasculine, or would you rather not? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, I mean, a lot of people that I know who have uh, uh, become you know come out as non-binary or transmasculine, um, it's something they always felt. They just didn't have the words for it. Did you find mm -hmm. that? Is that that was that something that was always sort of there for you? Well. 
I couldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't never have, I think what you just said that not having the words for it was, was definitely it. Um, I'm definitely, yeah, I definitely have experienced it. I'm really good at justifying things. And so I would just often, um, justify away the discomfort that I was feeling. Um, so I would, I would never have thought of it as, as gender dysphoria. And I had met trans people, but I had only met like binary trans people, like trans men and trans women. And, and so I, 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 I didn't really think that I was one of those things. Um, so I just didn't think I was trans. It wasn't until later when I started to understand non-binary stuff that these, these things started to make more sense. And it was kind of like, you know, one of those uh, like detective boards with all the like uh, pictures and you're trying to draw the connections. It was suddenly like I could see the connections between all these like uncomfortable things that I knew were uncomfortable for me. I just had never seen them all being connected under the umbrella of gender before. And so it was suddenly like very, you know, being really panicked when I was a teenager trying to buy clothes and really just being like, I don't know, I guess I'm supposed to wear this. Is this <laughs> bullies? Will you leave me alone if I wear this? Like it was never like, um, I was never like, oh, this is who I am. Um, and yeah, yeah, the the dysphoria, I think once I had a, an understanding of what that was, you know, and I used to say, like, I remember sitting around a table one time with a bunch of actually comedians and saying everyone was complaining about being a woman. And I was just like, yeah, and wearing dresses, right? And everyone was like, what? I was like, socks, hate it. And everyone was like, well, I love it. I love, you know, and, and I had written that off as, well, being a woman is hard. You know, wearing heels is hard. Everything about being a woman is hard. And there's a truth to that, but that's it. Like you, I could justify so much and, and it, it all kind of, um, once I, I didn't need to justify those things anymore, once it, and it wasn't a conscious mechanism, really. It was just like, well, just don't have to think about it. Then I would say dysphoria is the, is, is a correct word. Um, but there's a, yeah, there is a difference for me in, being a character and being myself. There's a lot of aspects about playing a character that aren't me and gender can be one of them. And I do maintain a strong feminine side. So I think it's it, it's it's fun. It feels like I'm in drag. I love it, you know? <laughs> but let's bring it back to, to Drag Race because that's something that I appreciate about, uh, to me, a good, like a good drag queen um, is yeah. somebody who, who who knows who their drag character is might not yeah. be very similar to themselves it might be similar but they know the differences between themselves and the character and they they can tell you who their drag persona is um and i think that brings out something something kind of special in that in that way um in this show you you know who uh, princess pimpernel is yeah <laughs> exactly yeah uh yeah she's a a bit nuts uh <laughs> but yeah i i think like I, yeah, I do know who who this character is, you know, and she's not me. I've never been a princess in a tower. Um, you know, I've never had knights who serve me and I've never fought a dragon outside of D&D. &D, and as sad as I am to say, I don't think I'd fight a dragon. I'd try to be friends with the dragon, I think. But but yeah, I, I've never there's enough differences that like 
I, I don't, I mean, and we'll see. I don't think it'll be dysphoric. I've played a few women since coming out. Um, and it's been fine. There've been a couple moments where it was like, oh, this is a little hard, but, but I had to do a scene one recently in a, in a bra, uh, and I was playing a nun, um, but the person opposite me was a cis man also playing a nun. So we were both kind of bros and bras and that, that, that kind of helped like, <laughs> but that was, a, that was, a, that was me just like a little bit like, I was like, oh, this is a bit, <laughs> a bit on the edge of, of what I, I would think I would feel comfortable in. But, but yeah, you know, for the most part, like the sexy Rex roles, like, let's be honest, I wrote them myself. And one of the first things when I came out, one of those like pictures on my like crime board was like, oh God, all of the characters that I've written <laughs> for Sex T-Rex all in some way are queer coded or at least <laughs> they aren't who they seem or like one of my characters was just called boy um, or they all kind of ha like in the princess's case has like a secret, like secretly she's like, you know, tough. And again, that doesn't, is not necessarily man, but it was like me expressing a side of myself that like I didn't know where else to put it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things, let's just jump back a little bit because I do want to talk about uh, Sex T-Rex as a group. Um, yeah. you've, you've mentioned that you guys, that you all went to theater school together. Um, yes. At that time, I think we are um, uh, uh, theater school siblings. I think we went to the same the same school, and I think we may have had similar I'm experiences. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Do we need to talk? Is this going to be no, no, no? Therapy? We don't. We need to go through the therapy okay? thing. We need to go to the therapy thing. I've dealt with all of that stuff years ago. Um, <laughs> it was not an easy time. No, I'm so sorry. What What year did you go? Oh, I was in ninety. Just to you know, ninety three. I think I graduated. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we might have had some different staff, yeah. but it was the same same program. Yeah. yeah. We were we were still at the at the River Street warehouse at that mm -hmm. time. So. <clears throat> well, my the year that I went, um, we we started there. Right. And we were the first year to move. Oh, over you were in the, the year that you went to Casaloma, and then you were in the middle of all of the flux. We were in the middle of the flux, but we were mostly in the Young Center. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, okay. You were fortunate enough to be, but to, well, fortunate enough, but. We were mostly in the Young Center. We were supposed to exclusively be in the Young Center, but there were some right. building delays. So we, we were a little bit on River Street, but right. um, that was mostly just, there was some kind of, I don't know, chemical something happened. Anyway, right. so we all had to, right. you know, building, building uh, stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, aside from yeah. that, um, you guys, you were all at that theater school together. Were you, were you pals then? Did you, do, did you hang out or how did you come together to form Sex T-Rex? Um, we, we, I think kind of what you identified, we were, uh, you know, brothers in arms facing adversity. <laughs> uh, I think there was, uh, a bond through, not fitting into the program, but we all loved stage combat. Um, there were there were some classes that we'd take that we just were all like, oh, this is great. And I wouldn't say that we were all best besties in school. Um, but the year we graduated was the year Sex T Rex was formed. 
and it started as an improv troupe. Um, and I think through through that is when we all became friends as well. Well, Sid, there's only there's two things that that are going to happen when you form a theater troupe with with people. It's either you're going to become best friends or you're going to hate each other's guts. There's really yeah. no you're not going to be ambivalent about the people that you work with. So no, I'm glad it went the good way. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like anything, we're 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 like a family, you know. So we've had like ups and downs, but I would say for the most part, like we love each other, and I think that we want to keep working together, and so we keep working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I want to talk a little bit about, more specifically, about about you and your theater life and some stuff that you've done. Um, now, one of the things that I, I know is that that you're getting ready to 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 prepare to do a short film. Yeah. Um, tell me about tell me about the short film and how that came about. Um, how did it come about? Well, my friend Gwen Gwen Cummins. Um, just texted me and was like, I I don't really remember where it came from. I think maybe I did a puppet show or and anyway, her partner does film stuff too. And they, they both are really active in film and TV. I'm less so. Um, I dabble. Um, I'm more of a theater guy. Uh, and I she just reached out and was like, do you want to do a, let's, we, we have access to a studio. We have access to some um, cameras and stuff. Do you want to do a short film with puppets? And I was like, heck yeah, that's really where, where it started. And um, since then, it's kind of grown. We've like applied for funding and stuff. So we're all just in the in holding. It's going to happen either way. But on what scale it happens depends. Uh, uh, come through governments. Um, we're but yeah, it's 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 we just got together and we were like, well, OK, what could, what what is a, a story about a pup that involves a puppet that we can write in a in a single room um and this was this was last year this was last november that we wrote it and uh i was starting to notice i I think it was around the time i was paying a lot of attention to the ukraine russia fight at the time and i was starting to learn a lot about fascism and authoritarianism and i was watching these trends happen in in um canada too and there's all kinds of groups that get scapegoated but i was recently relatively relatively recently out at the time and uh everything Gwen creates pretty much has to do is centered around queer stories and we were noticing the scapegoating of the queer community and we kind of had this idea to write this story uh, where the the kind of premise is you know puppets came to life and it was magical and wonderful and then people got started to treat puppets like a second class they became the scapegoat for everybody's problems. Uh, people started to protest. Uh, puppet bars were shut down. You know, so we kind of, and and basically like this puppet's in hiding. Um, so that's kind of the whole premise of the, the film, and it kind of just goes from there. Um, you've done quite a few things with with puppets over the years. Um, at what point did puppetry become a thing that you were interested in? Yeah. Uh, well, my whole life. I mean, my dad was a puppeteer, and growing up. With puppets, I didn't really think there was anything else I should do um, because puppets are great, uh, especially when you're a kid. And, and he uh, still runs a puppetry theater company, a touring theater company out of Nova Scotia. And so it was an oasis to get away from school, which I never loved. You know, I'd take days off and just go and 
build puppets with dad and, you know, um, so in working for his company was was kind of a, a life goal. It's why I went to theater school in the first place. I wanted to go into dance. Um, and then I was like, oh, well, if I have to work, if I have to go to theater school for that's that was like the second on my list. So I'll go to theater school to, to work for Mermaid Theater. And then I did that. And then I toured for six years. And I was like, all right. Yeah, that's how I kind of get interested in puppets from a very, very, very young age. So, yeah, I've been practicing puppets with my stuffed animals from the time I was like four. Um, yeah, it's 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 been a, a passion of mine for a long time. So your theater origin story starts with puppets. It does. Yes. Um, and at some point was 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 the choice to go into theater something that I mean, you, as you said, it was to get to do puppets. But what made you decide that that? theater school or and something along those lines would be beneficial over say dance or something like that literally to work at mermaid okay I, well and there were some other influences too um when i went to theater school i had very little experience performing on stage i had done some like high school musicals and stuff um yeah i i think i think i rationalized at the time too of like not that you know dancers career is quite short and if I wanted to do it, I grew up in a rural setting. I'd have a lot of work ahead of me. And by the time I was there, my career would probably be done-ish. Um, uh, so I think that played a bit of a role. Um, when I, my second year out of high school, uh, I still wasn't in school, but I, I went and lived in Montreal with a family friend who was working at Playwrights Workshop. And I spent a year, she was the artistic director of Playwrights Workshop at the time, and I spent a year living with her and we saw a lot of theater that year and more than that she partied with theater people like all the time and I'm not saying she like partied all the time but you know it was just kind of a we were constantly theater people coming through the house there were occasionally parties and and I just started to really get into what these people were doing and and I thought it was really cool that a lot of theater builders a lot of theater makers at, at that time Years and years ago, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So that was kind of what pushed me fully into theater, I think. And then I'd studied music, I studied dance. I was like, well, I studied all the classics, like studying classical music. Well, you know, classical music, classical dance, whatever. Um, a Eurocentric perspective, and I uh, thought, well, why not study classical theater? <laughs> Little did I know I was going to George Brown. <laughs> um, the 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 in, with 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 making the, the you know going into into theater and and forming Sex T Rex. You Ooh. there's a lot of things that that as self producers you need to learn how to do and figure out. Fringe is a great way to start. You know, doing Fringe festivals. It's sort of like producing light. Um, there's a lot of supports for you, but what kind of things, as far as producing, um, whether it's D and D live or 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 something like Swordplay or things like that, and mounting these productions, um, have you really found that 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 you were completely unprepared for when you started? That maybe you've learned some some really important lessons along the way. Oh God, I mean, I think. I think I'm okay at knowing when I'm really bad at something. <laughs> and I tried really hard to 
do our social media and write our press releases. And I was so overwhelmed by that side of producing. Like I can set up an event. I love making events. I love coming, taking care of all the details. Like that side of it, I love. But the the writing and forms and posting content, I'm terrible. Like I back when Twitter was kind of in its prime, every time we I would tweet, we'd lose followers. I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And I was trying to kind of do that side of it. And I learned that I was not good at it. So that's around when we brought in Victoria LaBerge. And she's been working with us now for a long time. Gosh, probably like eight eight or nine years now. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the stuff that you, that, you know, the, the press releases and the, and the social media and all that stuff, that is one of the, the, the hardest things I dread it every time I, I self-produce something. I have no idea what to say in the press release. No, I don't know. I don't know how Victoria does it and makes it like readable. (laughs) Well, I, I think Victoria has this wonderful gift. If anyone's listening and needs a publicist, hire Victoria LaBerge. Um, because she has a authentic enthusiasm for for theater and and the work that people do and and I'm not saying like I'm not enthusiastic but it I don't I'm not like a like boiling over with enthusiasm in an authentic way it comes across differently for me than it does her and I think that that like genuine sunshine that she just shines out comes through the words that she writes as well like i i receive emails from her and they're always just like delightful even if it's just a basic work email and and so i think that i think i don't know i'm sure there's a formula that like you could plunk in you know this is this is what sells or whatever but i think what's unique about her is that she has this ability to like have that enthusiasm infuse everything that she does like authentically organically and and so when people get her press releases they're delighted too i think you know and and i mean yeah i have my qualities but that's not one of them <laughs> you know yeah. yeah yeah as somebody who gets victoria's press releases i, I know exactly what you mean and right? and and i i i don't know because you know i'm enthusiastic about the shows that i create right i wouldn't yeah. be doing them otherwise but somehow as soon as i go to write a press release I am, uh, I'm just like, yeah, and this thing, there's stuff that happens. And it seems like, like I, I, whatever she's got, she should bottle it or maybe not. Cause that would be her bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. Like, and it's hard to, it's hard to talk yourself up, you know, it's hard to like, this is so great. Come to this great thing. This thing is great. I mean, I'm like, that would, that, that would make a terrible press release, you know, don't, don't write press releases like that, please. Um, but, but like, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I find it hard to be like, wow, check out my amazing show. Even if I think it's amazing, even if I'm really proud of it, it's, it's just, it's that extra step of, of thinking it and then like telling people you're great. I find that difficult, you know, maybe, maybe I won't always, but I, I do. And I don't know. So I, think, I think it's, I think it's one of the relate. hardest things. And I don't know if it's a particular Canadianism that we have a difficult time like talking ourselves up. Um, but, yeah. um, it's yeah. definitely a, a, a common problem because you're like, yeah, I think this is really great. But I mean, you could come if you want is basically the, the, the gist of most of the press releases that I can manage <laughs> to write just because it's hard for me to say. I, this is a really great show. You should come. Just like you're saying, like, I don't even know 
Because what are they going to think? I'm saying this like it's so weird to to have to do that, and it seems like so difficult to do. It is so difficult to do, and you should hire Victoria LeBay. I know, I know. <laughs> I've, I've attempted in the past, but she's so busy that she's uh, she's so busy. It's it sometimes hard to we got it. We got in early. You guys, I think you quite honestly, she's such a fan of yours. I think you guys have privileged positions. So, which justifiably so, justifiably so. I do recall when we did do swordplay for the first time. I remember she has a really uh, wonderful laugh, and it's very like her. You can always tell. I was like in a cab on Ossington one time, and I'm like, I heard yeah. like a Victor, like, a, ah, and I was like, hey, I texted Victoria. I was like, are you on Ossington? She's like, yes. How did you know? <laughs> it's like I heard you laugh. And when she was watching swordplay one time for the first time, I'll never forget it because I was distracted the whole show, like. Is she okay? You know, like, <laughs> is, she, is she is she going to be okay? But yeah, yeah, her laugh is is amazing and genuine. Yeah, she's one of those people All... who has the the one of the best laughs to have in the in the house. Like, oh, God, yes, it's contagious for the audience because they hear it. But it's also like you know, it's a real genuine laugh. And so, if you can make Victoria laugh, that laugh, you've really you really are on the right track. Yes, you know, you need those like laugh cheerleaders, even like they're authentically laughing, but they also can like give everyone else permission to laugh. Absolutely. Sometimes that, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we need that. Absolutely, we do. Absolutely. Ooh, and one thing I wanted to mention uh, you've done, you've done, I've seen a few short films that you've done. There's one coming up involves puppets. But you did a feature film recently. It's going to be re- released next year when you were not a puppet. I was not a puppet. <laughs> okay, tell me tell me about that and how it felt to not be a puppet in a film. Oh, it was really weird. Oh, you want to talk about theater school trauma? Because I haven't done a lot of acting outside of like sex directs or comedy as myself, like as a person. Mm-hmm. Most of my like professional work I do is with puppets. Um, and yeah, you know, you talk like I had weird little theater school trauma bugs that were in me still that I had no idea were still there. So it was really, really challenging on the one hand because I was like... <laughs> so insecure and trying to pretend like I wasn't but on the other hand god it was fun you know it was it was so fun to reconnect with those skills and with that side of myself that like I I just kind of left back in theater school basically um and and you know I did do a bit of film and tv after theater school but it was oh boy talk about gender dysphoria like going out for all the shitty girlfriend roles that were like what do we do and I could never do them like in a grounded realistic way because I thought they were trash (laughs) and just the you could just see on my face in that in the room I was like this writing is trash like I didn't have to say it with my words but it would just this was back when before you would like send in your tapes or whatever tapes Woo! Yeah, yeah. Send in your. <laughs> we still, it's still called self taping. I'm just anybody. Oh, right, who, that's true. Anybody who like rolls their eyes when when the older folks say tape, we still call it self taping. That's true, but you, we literally had to send in tapes then. Uh, but but we mostly do it in person. But yeah, I just people would be like, okay, but like, <laughs> yeah, maybe judge the material less, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I think I had some insecurities, but. I'd been working with the, uh, originally I was brought in to um, help uh, build the, the film. It, it was already kind of written, but like stage it, I guess. 
because the Grace Glowicki who wrote it, directed it, and produced it and starred in it, like, holy moly. I don't know how she managed that. It was wild. But, like, she wanted it to look theatery. She wants the film to look theatery. I, I don't think... I think that's safe. I think I can say that. And so she worked with theater artists, which was really cool. And so I got... To, that's how I got roped in. She'd seen Sexy Rex. And so I was just brought in to kind of do that side of stuff. And so we've been working in the studio for months. And... um. There was someone in the film that was supposed to be in the film and they dropped out. And then I got in. <laughs> so it was really great. It was really cool. I can't wait to see it. Um, I'm really curious. It's going to be a very trippy uh, theatrical horror comedy um, kind of Disney meets Tim Burton meets... I don't know. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty wild. God, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about, about that theater school trauma, and I will tell you oh, that um, it must have taken me like 15 years after I left theater school when I realized, oh, I was still trying to impress my theater, my the acting teacher at theater school and how long yeah. it took me to just like slough that off and be like, uh, he doesn't care. I don't need to impress him. And I, you can't anyway, you know, like all of that, yeah. all of that stuff. Because, you know, yeah. uh, I don't know about your experience, but I went through every time we sat down for one of those meetings. And this is like mm -hmm. in the, mm -hmm. you know, when it, one of those the, uh, end of semester meetings, they would yeah. tell me that they were cutting me from the program and I would have to claw my way back in. And so I spent the entire time in theater school in fear, which mm -hmm. is a terrible way to make art. Um, really not, not, not good. No, it's terrible. And so it, it, that's. That I carried that with me for the first like fifteen years of or so of, of of trying to be an actor in the world, um, and it's funny how those things stick with you, um, yeah. Even when you yep. tr are trying so desperately to ditch them, yeah, yeah. And and even when you think you're over them, they'll like creep up in these weird little moments. Um, yeah, you, you know, and and you're not alone. Like I. Oh, a number of years ago now, I think 2017 or so, it was around, there was like a prominent theater director from Soul Pepper who was uh, getting Harvey Weinstein pretty bad. Right. Um, and the Me Too movement was in full swing and still and stuff like that. And um, and I went to theater school with that guy in the building. You know, I went to Soul Pepper parties, but I was just sort of, I wrote a piece that was basically like like a Facebook post that was basically like, hey, you know, that whole building. So it's like it's a it's a cultural problem, you know, and theater school was was like that, too. You know, it's it's not a surprise that the in my theater school was a little bit less of the, the you know, sexual assault stuff and more. I mean, the, to my awareness and more the kind of for lack of a better word, narcissistic abuse. Right, yes, You know, yes. the kind of, like, tearing you down from the inside and then to build you up again, as if that's even a thing. Um, and as if people in their 30s and 40s, like my teacher was at the time, ha is in any position to do that to right. anybody. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, like, it was more that kind of abuse, um, really insidious, yeah. where, where you think you're, the, you're bad, you're, like, bad meat, you're, like, rotted somehow, yeah. instead of, like, 
oh, I can, this is a thing I can work on with my acting. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's no. like, no, no, you as a person uh, are worthless. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it's more that kind of stuff. So I had I heard of that about, about that period of that school, that it was that there was a lot of of that kind of narcissistic abuse. And most of the I'd done so many interviews with people during that period we would have a conversation and find out that went to George Brown and say, well, how was that? And they get a weird look in there and in their eye and say, it was fine. And then after we uh-huh. stopped recording, that's when they would tell me all of the stuff. And I'd be like, okay, I see um, some shit's happened. Well, exactly. And what I was going to say is like, I wrote a thing and then uh, she does the city published it, a version of it. And I started hearing from people. Like I thought I had it bad, right? Like, cause I did. You know, um, I but I was skinny, conventionally attractive female presenting at the time. And I thought I had it so bad. I wasn't fat. I wasn't a person of color. I wasn't queer. Well, I was, but (laughs) they didn't know that, Um, you know, or at least like obviously queer, you know, visibly queer. Um, And when I started to hear from some of those peers and the kinds of comments they had to endure, it really opened my eyes to, yeah, I did have it very bad. And what I experienced was really unacceptable. Um, And those teachers should be ashamed of themselves um, if they're capable of that. But, But what my peers were going through, not just from my year, but like as you're identifying other years, it was really eye-opening um, to, to hear from. And, and I have been hearing from people, not as often, but a, a guy from my class reached out like a year ago and we went for coffee and he was just, we graduated in 2008. He was just coming to terms with like PTSD. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Like, I don't want to say that that's what it was, but like trauma, I can say that, you know, like shaking he was shaking, talking about it, you know, and and so like that's not something to be scoffed at, and, and so many of us, right? Yeah. And 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 you and I were probably some of the lucky ones. Yeah. Like we we didn't have sort of more visible at the time things that could mark us. Yeah. You know that they could they could troll us for. Yeah. Theater school is. I mean, you you go in at a vulnerable age, right? Most people yeah, go most in yeah. 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there. You go in at a, yeah. at, a, at a vulnerable age, um, and a lot of times, and I think that theater schools are finally starting to not do this, but have the whole attitude that you mentioned of uh, we're going to tear you down and then build you back up, and then they would do a lot yeah. of work on tearing you down and nothing on building you back up. <laughs> yeah, they build up like three people. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> there would be three people who got built back up, and the rest of you can go jump sit in the garbage can where you belong or whatever, you know, <laughs> like all of this bullshit. Yeah. I think that some theater schools are starting to finally deal with that, but it has been like, it has been 20, 30 years of, of that, that, that has needed to, and that's needed to change. And it hasn't until really recently. Really recently. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of in a a squishy, vulnerable place itself. Like people are kind of trying to figure out how to do this without the abuse. You know, it's kind of, everyone's kind of got Bambi legs and stumbling around trying to learn. And like, I think that there's a, a lot of change. It's happening really fast. Um, I had a privilege of hanging out with some, at the time they weren't recent grads. They are recent grads now of uh, George Brown. 
Uh, I helped one of them move. Long story. But I had this privilege of spending time with these younger people and getting to hear their experience of going through that same school night and day, you know, yeah. and like they didn't even know about the dark times, no. really. I mean, one of them did. But the rest of the and I was like, you know, they're like, oh, it's not perfect. But, you know, it's good. It's great. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we didn't go through anything like that. And I was like, this is, you know, you can teach theater. You're doing a play. It has the word play in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying like everything has to be fun and a party all the time, but like you can learn to act without being traumatized. Yes. Like that just, you know, and it's so you're right. Like the, the the title change I am so hopeful for and I'm so grateful for. And I think it's uh needed it's just like leftover i don't know british military colonial stuff we're dealing with it's like top down patriarchal you're bad yeah (laughs) yeah i really feel like a lot of the a lot of the teachers for a long time were sort of just um going forward with the attitude of like well i was kind of i was borderline abused in theater school so that's how you learn how to be an actor and and it's just yep such a, a terrible way. And I am so glad that so many of the people who are in that school now have no idea how bad it got. Yeah, I am so grateful for that. Well, you know, you talk about cycles of abuse, right? Like you talk about people talk about intergenerational trauma and it, it, there's it's, it's like there might be a genetic component, but it's handed through behavior. Yes. Yeah. And and that's how it happens. The only way you know how to teach theater is the way that you learned and then you do it and then you hurt someone, even if you don't mean to. I think in a few cases, I'm unsure if that, I believe there might have been intention. I don't know. Can't read your mind, but to hurt. But even some of the teachers that I think were good people that didn't want to do harm were doing harm because they were only doing what they knew. Yes. You know? Yeah. And yeah. and it takes it takes a lot to break that, that cycle, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, with five minutes left in our conversation, I want to ask <laughs> you. Um, yes. Who is your favorite drag race drag queen? Okay. Yes. Uh, my go-to answer is Sasha Valore. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, winner of season nine. Um, I like my smart queens. I like my weird queens. I like my arty queens. I like my queens who say something with... I Look, I love a, a party queen, a queen who's just like flipping and dipping and doing all those cool things like I, I, have, I have a lot of love for all types of queens but i think that like that type of queen is 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 i think mm, yeah my favorite my favorite type yeah um and you know just to just to get controversial what in your mind uh what what makes for what makes good drag good drag look i'm not a drag expert uh, I'm maybe a drag race expert that could maybe be said <laughs> and so far as any fan could be I do have spreadsheets of all of my all of the queens <laughs> and notes and thoughts of all of them um, what makes a, a good drag queen I think at the end of the day like it's the same thing that makes any good artist um, are you connected to yourself you know and if you are I think that's what's going to come through and that's what's going to make you different and special um, because like everyone has a, a you know a different light and whether you're doing clown whether you're doing drag whether you're doing acting you know or writing a book like whatever that is 
I think that the most successful artists or the ones that the people that resonate with other people are able to be their most authentic self. That's in my opinion, like what certainly through watching Drag Race, like those are the queens that I think tend to do better. The ones that are grounded in themselves, you know, not trying to impress their theater school teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Not trying to be like, look, RuPaul, you know, those ones that are like seeing themselves from the outside in instead of being themselves from the inside out. Like I think that those queens, I think do the, at least certainly do the best at Drag Race, Mm -hmm. but in my, oh God, almost 20 years as being a professional artist, I see that in all forms of art Mm -hmm. that like, the actors that I, I I can't take my eyes off of, you know, are tend to be the ones who are able to connect with something true to themselves. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Lowen, thank you so much for for joining me. I really appreciate you thank giving me your you. time. Uh, looking forward to having swordplay on the stage again. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, and thanks for for, for uh, giving me the time. It was great as always. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.